0: Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.
1: Professor Alfred McCoy first appeared on my radar when I came across his fascinating 2015 essay, Grandmaster of the Great Game, on the website Tom Dispatch. The essay wove together geopolitics and history to make a compelling case that President Barack Obama was that most rare thing, a grand master of geopolitical statecraft. Where others saw weakness or confusion, McCoy, drawing on Alfred McKinder's famous maxim, whoever rules the world island commands the world, saw in Obama's pivot to Asia a geopolitical strategy that, if successful, might have extended Washington's hegemony deep into the 21st century. Well, seven years is a long time in geopolitics, and as they say, the rest is history. A veteran empire watcher, McCoy has continued to write on what he now regards as a terminal decline in US global power, the rise of China, and most recently, the threat posed by climate change to world order. In his latest book, To Govern the Globe, McCoy combines geopolitics, history and climate science to look back 600 years, over three world orders and 90 empires, to help us not only better understand where we are today, but also to project out into the future and provocatively ask whether climate change will be the endgame for world order as we know it.
2: When when, when the Chinese, Chinese can build and operate their system for maybe 20 to 30 years, But as climate change reaches this inflection point, this serious crisis point, and China is forced to pull back uh, its international involvement such as it might have been, the world will be faced with a situation for the first time in about 600 years at that point with no world order and the threat of really serious global disorder. So what's the alternative to this global disorder?
1: This is Imperfect Utopia or Bust, Global Governance Futures. Professor Alfred, or Al McCoy, is currently the Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Over a 50-year career as a historian, Al has published dozens of books and hundreds of essays on the history of the Philippines, U.S. foreign policy, European colonization of Southeast Asia, and Central Intelligence Agency Covert Operations, among other topics. His most recent book is titled To Govern the Globe, World orders and catastrophic change, and published by Haymarket Books. We spoke with him in January twenty twenty two. That's a nice way to to kick things off. I mean, this idea of, as you say, the the sort of unforgiving task of the historian to to weave together person, time, and place. I mean, you. I won't ask when exactly you were born, but I uh, um, understand you were, you essentially were born at the apex of the American. Well, empire in a sense.
2: 1945.
1: uh, That's (laughs) it. Right. Yeah. So this is, this is the very height of American power, really, or at least the sort of the the departure point of uh, American hegemony, or or I guess within the bipolar system. Uh, And then, of course, you in the seventies, you were at, at Yale, at grad school. And you started working, shall we say, on the, the darker underbelly of American imperial power with your work on the global heroin and trade. And also, I was just wondering, maybe you could just give us a sense of how you would locate yourself within time and place and how that's informed your work up to today. Why, why this project? Let's, let's
2: well, first of all, get into the, it. The, the relationship between the, uh, the, the project and the personal. Uh, as you noted, I was born in 1945. June 1945, uh, Germany defeated Japan's defeat over the horizon. Uh, my father was fighting with the 89th division in the crossing of the Rhineland into Europe as a, an artillery officer. He transferred to the United States and uh, uh, was in forming a new division for the invasion of Japan. My father thought certainly that he and most of his comrades were going to be landing in the home islands after the Battle of Okinawa, in which something like 50,000 uh, U.S. troops were, were casualties. He thought, sure, certainly he'd be dead. And then the nuclear bomb was dropped and, and, and he didn't ship out for Japan. Uh, and, and then uh, during the 1970s, uh, well, actually during the 60s, I was a student at Columbia during the Columbia Student Riots, the protests over the Vietnam War. And then uh, as a graduate student at Yale University in history, Uh, when U.S. troops were fighting in Vietnam, uh, uh, there was something called the draft lottery, in which the U.S. government, having uh, had initially graduate deferments, uh, people like Dick Cheney got three of them or so, maybe four, so he didn't have to go to the war. As he said, he had other priorities. And um, uh, 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 so the... After they started dipping deep into the poor whites of Appalachia, the Puerto Ricans who had the highest casualty rates, percentage of population of any ethnic group in the United States, African-Americans, the protests from those communities started coming. So they reintroduced the conscription lottery, the draft lottery, and they cut up the calendar and um, uh, they read them off over the national radio. And I remember sitting there as we uh, listening and people, young men, I'll call Samara, listened to that you know, to those 365 dates being read off. And we got to 364 and 365. I was convinced that I was so afraid of going to the war that I hadn't heard my own birth date. And it turned out that there weren't 365 dates in the the jar. There's, of course, leap year. There were 366. My birthday was 366, the very last date drawn, only lottery I've ever won. So I didn't have to go. But I felt somehow that, you know, that that, that was a physical exemption, but a nor, not a moral one. And so uh, I was very heavily involved in, in anti-war activities and that redoubled my determination to do something about the war. And uh, so I went to Vietnam as a, a reporter for Harper's Magazine. Uh, and my topic was the epidemic of drugs that was sweeping the U.S. Army and Vietnam in Vietnam. And the last demoralized phase of the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam when we were, were drawing down and pulling out, uh, we now know that about 34% of all U.S. troops in South Vietnam were regular heroin users, heroin addicts, to put it bluntly. And the question was, where was the drug coming from and who was trafficking? And so I began investigating and I, I, I did a, a lap and a half around the globe. I went to Saigon. I went into the hills of Laos and I found that CIA covert action allies, uh, a Hmong militia of 30,000 men, uh, the Hmong people's primary cash crop was was opium from the opium poppy <clears throat> and CIA's helicopters were as a part of their sort of involvement in delivering goods to the Hmong were carrying their opium out. The commander in chief of the Royal Laotian Army ran the world's uh, largest heroin laboratory and that was the source of the drugs. And <clears throat> when I began to publish that book The head of the CIA's covert operation, a man named Cord Meyer Jr. who at the peak of his power had run the US press manipulation for the CIA. And he had media assets across the United States. He was a a formidable cold warrior. Um, And uh, he was determined to destroy my book, to block its publication and destroy my career. And since he was an alumnus of Yale University and during that period, There was a disproportionate number of top CIA officials from Yale. And so they started pulling strings. I was put on academic probation. I mean, two things happened the same week. One, my book was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review. That never happens to a first book author. And second, I received a notice of probation and pending dismissal from Yale universities. Those two weren't usually supposed to come together. You know, incredible academic success and threatened dismissal from your academic program. And uh, <clears throat> my income tax was audited. My phone was tapped by the FBI. Uh, and uh, suddenly I, I found myself uh, you know, learning about the amazing extent of the U.S. covert apparatus, the way that it had penetrated so deeply into American society. Um, I mean, my, my fellowship was, my, was audited by the U.S. Department of Education my phone was tapped. Uh, and even one of my old friends sort of turned up and he had been working in army intelligence and trying to renew the relationship. And I knew it was, in, you know, he was assigned to, 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 to monitor and penetrate and, and get incriminating information on me. And so, you know, in, in the life of a graduate student, you know, doesn't have many threads in the tapestry. And the CIA was able to pull every single one And that's when I discovered the enormous power and and the the penetration of the agency within the fabric of American life at the peak of the Cold War. They don't have anything like that anymore. But back then, they had it. And so at the age of 26, 27, I had been given uh, not only a a first step towards my doctorate, but a crash course in in the covert netherworld and and the way that the, the world was actually operating. And so that was my introduction to global power.
0: <clears throat> oh, that's an that's a amazing insight into your kind of early career, start to your research career. Um, I was reading recently, I don't know if this is true, you'll probably be able to back this up, but the, the, the heroin use of the soldiers in the war stopped when they changed kind of their habit, habitat and moved back to the US and the, the heroin rates Almost died down because of a kind of change in location, and I wondered if that could almost be a metaphor for the way that the U.S. thinks about preserving world order. There are these things that happen in far-off lands, and where there might be, like you're saying, the covert operations that go on, but on on home soil, the impression of the white ships is is overall a positive one, and it's it's a, it's a, a, a worthwhile endeavor. And I wondered if you could just speak to that that duality of the U.S.'s impression of world order, maybe from a, a citizen uh, such as yourself?
2: Well, the, the buzzword you mentioned, which is recursive to the book, is duality. Um, uh, there have been in the past 500 years roughly 90 empires, large and small, that have come and gone, but only three world orders, and since we're using the term, what's a world order? They stand in close relationship to imperial power, but they're, they're distinct. The empire represents power and world order represents principle and the most powerful empire at its peak can sometimes elaborate the penumbra of its power globally in a way through a world order that can often outlast that empire. So empires, of course, are, 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 are concrete. They have often boundaries, they have armies that defend those boundaries. They have treaties and ententes that establish the, the limits of a, an asymmetric relationship between a power and a subordinate power, et cetera. Okay, so they're hard and specific and and real, and they uh, and they're more readily challenged by rival empires. World orders, by contrast, are 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 less palpable, but far more pervasive and persistent. World orders govern the the languages people speak, the laws that they observe, the the way they worship and and work and even play, because all imperial powers have soft power and sports and leisure are part of that as well. And so uh, uh, there have been just three world orders during the past 500 years when those 90 empires have come and gone. And they were the Iberian, the British, the American. And now, as the American is fading, by my estimation, at the end of this decade or in 2030, perhaps the Chinese world order is in the germ, just over the horizon. Uh, And uh, each of these empires has a duality. uh, uh, Oh, sorry, each of these empires and and their their world orders has a a duality between power and principle. And so, in the era of the Iberian age, the, the power was ruthless conquest of the pagan, non-Christian world and their dominance and indeed their, their enslavement. At the same time, the civil society embodied in the Spanish religious orders who witnessed the conquest of the Caribbean, the slaughter of the indigenous populations, um, people like Bartolome de las Casas and Francisco de Victoria, they came up with an idea that that these people beyond Europe were not pagans, they were humans, and that they discovered, as Bartolomé de las Casas wrote at the very end of his life, in, in one of his many, many widely influential works, that all humanity are human, and all humanity have rights. And Victoria carried that into his lectures, and I uh, believe really the, the founding lectures on arguably on international law. He was widely influential with the century, nearly a century later, with the the great Dutch scholar Hugo Grotius, who many people attribute the the kind of creation of international law and the articulation of an international system. Uh, But Grotius, particularly in the younger phase of his career, argued for a a universal human rights of all people that transcended uh, religion and, and ethnicity. The people of Indonesia had as many rights and Uh, to to, to their sovereignty as did the people of Europe. Uh, And uh, um, so that was, you know, the idea of human rights was the the principle that emerged uh, uh, during the Iberian age. And the idea of imperial power and enslavement was the power that came with the Iberian empires. In the British Imperial age, as at its dawning, uh, that ongoing debate over human rights uh, led to a campaign in the late 18th century, culminating uh, uh, after, a, a, I think it was a petition to the British Parliament, signed by a million people in an island nation of, what, 10 million people, an enormous movement by the the dissident churches, the, the Methodists, the Quakers, and evangelical Anglicans like Wilberforce, like <clears throat> And that culminated in 1807, when the British Parliament banned the slave trade, and then at the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars, and more than a or less than a decade later, uh, the Royal Navy launching an 80-year campaign against the slave trade. So at at the dawn of the British era, principle was clearly articulated, a principle of human rights that made the slave trade an abomination. And uh, the the British infused their era with that morality of of the anti-slave movement. uh, And it was an enormous effort. It was the primary project uh, for the better part of 80 years, the Royal Navy. Of the Royal Navy, something like 15,000 sailors killed in that campaign. And it went, when it its peak, it was up to 2% of the, of the gross domestic product of the United Kingdom involved in that camp- campaign. It was enormously costly. Arguably, some scholars have said, the most costly human rights campaign in history. At the same time, there was the power equation. You know, uh, Britain was spreading its empire and like-minded empires were spreading. And <clears throat> they... Uh, Uh, they not only conquered and colonized subject peoples, but they required of them corvée labor up to 20 days a year of unpaid, non-compensated labor to build imperial infrastructure. Uh, So it was, the British imperial era was a kind of halfway house on progress towards human rights. And then when... That system, that imperial system, which had its peak in 1900, created, what, 146 colonies, covered 40% of the globe and encompassed 30% of all humanity. When that system came to a, an end in the two world wars, and particularly in the cataclysm of World War II, in which over 70 million people were killed, and the U.S. emerged as a, a, a enormous power, half the world's industrial output, as much of the world was ravaged, a, a, an army of 16 million men and women, <clears throat> uh, a vast armada of tanks and planes and air, aircraft and, of course, the ultimate weapon, the nuclear bomb. At the peak of this power, the United States sat down and very self-consciously, with its major allies, constructed a new world order. And that world order had, had also had a duality. Uh, on the one hand... <clears throat> uh, there was the, the, the power, the, just the raw power of U.S. dominance hegemony Germany over the globe. But then there was the principle enshrined in the United Nations, the idea that all human beings have universal human rights and that every human community has a right to, to be, um, become a sovereign nation. And that sovereign nation has inviolable sovereignty rendering empire and colonies an anathema in this new system. And this new order was not only grounded in these two principles, but it also was girded by the rule of law, which was America's primary international project from the time it stepped on the world stage in the 1890s, and a spirit of cooperation. Of course, then there was that duality. The United States, having created the principle of human rights, was simultaneously developing new sophisticated doctrines of psychological torture that it propagated among its allies during the Cold War, which were arguably one of the ultimate violations of human rights. And then the United States faced with a a major contradiction. Okay. When you are constructing a world, uh, uh, well, at, at San Francisco it was 50 nations that met and there are now 200 nations as half a dozen European empires decolonized over 100 new nations began emerging all with with inviolable sovereignty under the the UN charter which the United States had, had helped draft so how do you how do you exercise your hegemony how do you how do you violate inviolable sovereignty which is a necessary adjunct of hegemonic power you can't do it so and you have to do it how do you resolve this contradiction You do it covertly. And so that led to the creation of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, which under President Eisenhower had something like 150 major covert operations, and we know the largest of them, you know, a handful of operatives sent around the globe to to govern the one thing that, that concerned the United States above all else, who was sitting in the office of the prime minister or in the presidential palace and manipulating elections and coups and economies and trade in order to to control that apex of power and thereby control those nations and so that was the that, that was the duality and that has been the duality of us uh, the, the 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 US world order
1: so perhaps how we can tease apart some of that very helpful kind of laying out of the the broad arguments and when it comes to the the delicate duality as you put it, between realpolitik and principle. Uh, I mean, I, there's that famous quote by by Gandhi. You know, he was asked, "What do you think of Western civilization?" And he said, "I think it would be a good idea." And I guess there'd be uh, there'd be a lot of sort of different viewpoints among our audience as to what the scorecard is between realpolitik and principle when it comes to assessing uh, U.S. historical record. I mean, how do you how would you assess the scorecard?
2: It's the same one, okay? The one thing about world orders that, that struck me in, in doing this work and put aside in the sort of u- usual monographic focus of historians, I am formerly an historian of modern Southeast Asia. Well, actually, that's not even true. I'm really technically an historian of the modern Philippines, right? That's my sort of narrow historical brief. And that means I work on one country among the 200 or so on the planet, and I work on, you know maybe 70 or 80 years very now so the one of the, one of the advantages of, of of doing a history of the globe and uh, covering a period of about 700 years is you begin to see uh, continuities and comparisons much more sharply and clearly than, than you might otherwise have in just the normal lecturing and the thinking about power uh and uh the one thing that struck me is the way that each of these successive world orders have this ingrained duality between power and principle, okay? I mean, the, 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 the excesses of Spain in the Americas are beyond horrors beyond imagining. You know, Bartolome de las Casas, whom I mentioned, who was the man who not only documented those excesses, but was one of the first to articulate the idea of a universal humanity. You know, yeah, he, he participated in the conquest of Cuba— and he, dis- he describes in his writings participating in horrific massacres, all right, um, <coughs> which he describes in bone-chilling detail. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, at the same time, you know, that system produced the idea, the germ of the idea of human rights. They articulated it with surprising clarity, all right, and of uh, the foundation of this continuous evolution. I'm sure there are many philosophies around the world, many religions that have within it this ingrained idea. But but articulating it formally and beginning a debate, producing texts that got built upon by other texts and that led to where we are today. Okay, so that, that was that was one duality. And again the, the British duality between <clears throat> the, the 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 enormous cost and dedication to the anti slavery campaign uh, becoming Along with the American Civil War, which killed seven hundred fifty thousand people, two uh, forces—you know—the uh, slavery was such a powerful institution, the slave plantation was so persistently profitable that it had to be killed by you know uh, uh, the greatest war ever fought in the in the Americas, the American Civil War. In fact, uh, seven hundred fifty thousand dead, more than more dead than, than in the Civil War than all other wars the U.S. has fought, and of course that British Royal Navy campaign. Okay. Uh, and uh, America has the same kind of duality, the, you know, the, the liberal international order that the United States built, which is the culmination of these five fitful, painful centuries of slavery and conquest and colonialism and all the rest, right? You know, uh, those principles enshrined in the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are, 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 are powerful and important, and they made major contributions one to ending seg- racial segregation in the United States, uh, arguably to ending apartheid in South Africa, contributing to the, the the decolonization of the globe and the construction of the world we have today. It's it's a, enormously important. I, I you know there's a reason why December tenth around the world, particularly in, in during the Cold War when people were under authoritarian rule, was a very important holiday for human rights activists. Okay, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, so the American duality is like all of them. The American empire, in its exercise of power, defied those principles, tortured, and, and we're still dealing with Guantanamo. And we had just recently, uh, I think it was seven serving uh, mid-ranking American military officers that are involved in the in the justice or the military justice program Guantanamo, publish a letter which was on the front page of the New York Times denouncing the abuse of the detainees of Guantanamo as a violation of America's principles and everything this country stands for. And it is, you know. Uh,
1: do you so, think uh, that? Um, so is, we're, is this...
2: we're, we're, we're duality. We have this duality, this painful duality like all others. And as I see the Chinese world order emerging, it has the same. But you were saying, Tom, go ahead, your question.
1: I was just curious to ask, you know, do you think that the this this duality and perhaps when the real politic becomes more visible, should we say or overt is a is a symptom of an empire in decline that when empires become scared, dissidents become enemies uh, you know we might look at say the the situation with Julian Assange right now and the extradition the extradition inqu- um uh, proceedings going on here in london
2: well uh, one of the things that empires in decline do is that they uh they torture more I mean, more recklessly, there's always an inclination to do this in any kind of pacification situation where imperial troops are dealing with insurgencies uh, and trying to discover the identity of insurgents who are, uh, are, by their very nature, hiding and covert. And so there's an inclination to torture. I mean, the United States military did it during <clears throat> its conquest of the Philippines between 1898 and 1902. Uh, it was systematic. It was called the, the water cure. And when you look at the the photographs and the etchings it's it's waterboarding pure and simple um uh, so um you know uh, empires tend to do it but it's in their decline when the torture uh becomes widespread out of control and uh, produces a, 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 in the modern world a civil society reaction uh so you know the, the french in algeria uh systematically tortured particularly in the battle of algiers and that produced uh a, a, a an enormous uh, protest in france itself um that really undercut popular support for you know the the continuing attempt to to crush the algerian revolution so so the, the you know there are I, I we can make a case that uh empires in de, in decline uh being challenged uh uh will torture more systematically in the case of the united kingdom uh there were two major parliamentary inquiries into. One uh, tortured by British forces in in, in Aden, uh, and then of course uh, there were the very famous human rights case against the United Kingdom in Northern Ireland, in which the, the psychological torture techniques that the British developed in conjunction with the CIA uh, at the very start of the Cold War, uh, when those techniques finally surfaced during a 1971 campaign in Northern Ireland. And five of the people who have been used as kind of guinea pigs in applying these techniques, following the human rights case. And that's been, that, that, that's been ongoing litigation since the 1970s. Um, and, you know, the, the, litigants are going to perhaps try again before the European Court of Human Rights. So, uh, this, this doesn't go away. <clears throat> uh, so that's one manifestation. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You can make the case that in, in the case of the American empire, the, uh, the power side of the equation of the duality uh, manifests itself. But there, there are other manifestations of decline as well. I mean, there's, you know, one of the prime ones is, of course, what's known as micromilitarism, and uh, in which an empire in decline has a political elite that decides that a bold military strike can somehow recover lost power. And it's a kind of psychological Cry in the midst of the, the enormous pressures of decline for people who are heavily invested in the imperial project, and of course the, the classic case of micromilitarism was the British Suez intervention of 1956, when you know the British Empire was well in retreat, uh, already arguably about half gone, and suddenly the ruling Conservative Party under Sir Anthony Eden decided that the that the way to do it was to Invade and recover Suez, that geopolitical hinge between British, Britain's Far Eastern Empire and its European position. Um, and, uh, you know, with the French, it was six aircraft carriers. Uh, uh, uh their Israeli allies invaded Sinai. They smashed the Egyptian, uh, armored units in the Sinai desert. Uh, British and French Air Force swept the Egyptian Air Force from the skies, destroyed 100 aircraft or so, landed. And, uh, of course, they forgot the geopolitics. Nasser didn't have much left. So he just got some rusting tankers, filled them with rocks, closed the Suez Canal. And then they also forgot that it was a changing world, that empire was no longer accepted, acceptable internationally. And Eisenhower, you know, uh, knew this intuitively and said that, you know, if we back the British, they'll hate us from Dakar to the Philippines and we can't do this. And so, you know, uh, uh, Britain's economy, it's the pound sterling once the global reserve currency (coughs) trembled at the brink of collapse. The first IMF bailout, International Monetary Fund bailout was not for the Mexican peso, it was for the British pound and it was a billion dollar bailout to save the collapse of the pound sterling. And the, the, the ramifications would have rippled right through the British economy which was still engaged in a post-war recovery. So, you know, it was, you know, it was disastrous. And and we've had our our micro-military moment in the United States, you know. Um, Ours was more an expression of extraordinary arrogance, uh, unalloyed imperial hubris. I mean, at the, you know, at the end of the Cold War, in 1991, we were the most powerful nation on the planet. There, you know, there was no even near peer military arrival. Um, we spent the 1990s working in a kind of one two punch with the IMF, knocking down every barrier to a, an <clears throat> a completely open global economy. We laid hundreds of thousands of miles of fiber optic cables around the planet. We elaborated a, a uh, commercial communication satellites. And by 2001, we had constructed a world in our image. The American elites in Washington DC decided to borrow Francis Fukuyama's famous phrase that it was the end of history, that for all time and in all places, the American vision of democracy and free markets and capitalism would spread and sweep all before us. And at this apex of power, we had our micro-military moment and we decided we would in, intervene in not Afghanistan, which was a response to 9-11, but a, a war of choice in Iraq. That somehow, we could send American military forces into the Middle East, construct ourselves a bastion in Baghdad, the green zone, and then ramify across the region and bring the end of history to the Arab world. But somehow we could go into the Cradle of civilization, the home of a millennium plus of Islamic culture, and we would just sweep this away, you know, as if it were inconsequential. You know, not only was it the end of history, but these people, you know, those people had no history whatsoever. We could just we could just wipe it away. It was, you know. <clears throat> uh,
1: In the book, you do document how there are certain individuals who have a kind of well-strategic vision, who really understand the art of geopolitics.
2: Well, that Uh, was a disaster. That was an absolute disaster, because when you think about it, what was the $8 trillion U.S. intervention in the Middle East for? What what possible gain could it have had? And the only logic, and I'm not saying this is causality, I'm not engaging a a little Marxist reader here, but... The only economic logic, the only payback for this eight trillion dollar investment was securing a lasting lean and control over the Middle Eastern oil. And when you think about it strategically, we were doing this right at the moment that oil was about to join cordwood and coal in the dustbin of history. And this was a, a gross geostrategic miscalculation. So that was the micromilitarism. The other part of this this extreme imperial hubris was the idea and this was bipartisan on you know both republican and democrats in washington dc were so convinced of the, the might and majesty of american power <clears throat> that the end of history you know that that we were it for all time that we could admit china into the world trade organization as an economic equal and You know, most of these exchanges have been between pure industrial powers. You know, we swap our Boeing jets for uh, German BMWs and Mercedes Benzes and all the rest. Okay, Uh, so and so Washington's elites decided that we could admit China to the World Trade Organization with full (coughs) access (coughs) to our market and markets around the world. And we could integrate our economy to China's economy and we would, we would transform China into a capitalist democracy. And, you know, again, the blinding hubris. China is, until roughly 1800, until the rise of, of the British Imperial era, was for over a thousand years the most powerful nation on the planet. Uh, they are of uh, a continuous culture and civilization, uh, and they're the home of 20% of humanity. The idea that we can, we're, we're going to transform China, that our world order is going to penetrate and reshape China, you know, by bringing them into it. it, was amazing arrogance. And, of course, you know, it hasn't worked out quite that way. Do
0: you think that's because of the, as you were alluding to, the kind of Western-centric way in which we view the changing of order, so that from that kind of the Greek and the Trojans down of, of one power overtaking another? I'm I'm thinking of some academic work by I think David Kang where he talks about if you look at Asian history it, it can be the implosion of power from within as opposed to the usurpation from an outside source and have we have we misunderstood um through our kind of western lens how how power changes hands for
2: <clears throat> ruling elites at the apex of of Imperial power, I don't think there's a conception of of losing power, of changing hands, okay? Uh, They may have, you know, clever a minuency, uh, you know, burrowing away in their cubicles who will understand things more deeply, more broadly. But the people of the apex of the system are invested with the aura of their own power. Um, And I I mean, uh, you know, um, Sir Anthony Eden and the Conservative Party, that, you know, those title lords that filled the cabinet of that day, couldn't actually imagine that an Arab, that Nasser could defy them. And, and one of the things I, you know, that the, the records fragmentary is very clear that, that Eden didn't want to just, you know, take back the canal. He wanted to kill Nasser. You know, he put mi 6 up to it multiple times. There were several efforts, you know, and you know, purely vindictive you know, there was this this unwillingness to accept the idea that 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 somebody from you know one of the others could actually be a serious significant politician and and and, and who might challenge our power and and uh, that's the same in in the United States I uh, there was no idea in the United States that we could do other than intervene in Iraq and remake it in, absolutely in our own image um, you know uh what L. Paul Bremer did when he was head of the coalition provisional authority and he issued two decrees, Decree One and Decree Two, in which he wiped out the Ba'ath Party and then, then abolished the Iraqi army. I mean, he wasn't, he had no conception that these were human beings that had agency that might react as they did by, you know, uh, using their military skills to supporting an insurgency, developing uh, IEDs, improvised explosive devices that produced you know, thousands of horrific casualties among American forces and costing billions of dollars in up-armoring our, our vehicles. There was the no idea that, you know, that they would do this. And, and again, when the United States, you know, was convinced that it would it would just integrate China, these people had no sense whatsoever that China had its own powerful sense of destiny. You know, the the the, the idea, the bipartisan idea of that we could, you know, that we should, yeah, you know open our economy to China, give China every economic opportunity, engage in some in technology transfer to China. There was no idea that, that that China was going to to change the rules of the game and challenge our power
1: i mean and also how it strikes me that it's, uh, it reflects sort of a very strange ahistoricism in the Western power elites, and we might say in perhaps Western modern culture more generally. Uh, And obviously what your book really brings home is the importance of history as a kind of a lens to understand how we got to where we are today and indeed what tomorrow might bring. Is that the sense you get that the the elite in Washington today is is much less attuned to the historical dynamics than they might have been, say, in the 1940s or 50s?
2: Yeah, because... um the, the contrast between the, the founding uh, the sort of founders of the uh, um of the American World Order, um yeah, it was a very mixed elite. It was an enormous project because it came at the end of a war. All right. And so um the the, the military elite that that merged emerging command of the US military by the end of World War II were really an extraordinary generation of leaders. Uh Wright Eisenhower, um, you know, had a, a, a political education that was truly extraordinary. I mean, as a as a major in the U.S. Army, uh, his first major command assignment was the construction of the Philippine Armed Forces. You know, uh, he he built an entire nation's army. You know, as a basically a mid-career officer, when he should have been sitting in a barracks filling up reports on the fitness of a about a 1,000 men, okay? Instead, he, he created a, a, an army of several hundred thousand men. as that experience. And, um, you know, the, uh, the combination of those kinds of experiences and then the immersion in this great global war gave that generation uh, an intuitive sense of, first of all, the importance of allies, the reality of persons and places beyond the United States. The, the necessities of coalition warfare and coalition building. And so that, that generation of political and military elite, which were fused at that point in the mobilization for a total war, you know, were extraordinarily skillful in the global apparatus they built. And, and they, you know, if you read the records of the National Security Council, although they're not aware historically, they're aware geopolitically of what they need to do. And one thing that I did, I learned, and it sort of came very late in this project, was as I was writing these successive chapters on the Iberian, the the Dutch, the British, the Americans, suddenly it struck me that uh, historically, the one thing that they had all shared, despite an amazing span across centuries and amazing diversity of cultures the one thing that all of these global hegemons had shared was the attempt to control the Eurasian landmass, that that was that as their powers in the ascent their control of the Eurasian landmass expanded and in their decline you know that failure of, of, of control also became evident and weakened and crumbled all right uh, and, and I'm so, glad
1: you brought that up, Al. actually, because one of, the, one, of the, one of the reasons why I got so fascinated by your work was indeed that you introduced me to Mackinder's idea of the world island as a geopolitical strategic sort of pivot. Perhaps you could just explain that briefly in, in this context.
2: Yeah, sure. <clears throat> uh, you know, at the apex of uh, British imperial power, when, when there was a challenger now on the horizon, in uh, Germany, circa 1900, uh, I've been a relatively obscure geographer named Alfred McKinder, uh, who was one of the founders of the School of Economics, uh, and uh, pursued much of his career there. Uh, he um, he came. He published an article in the Geographical World Geographical Journal in 1904, arguing that there was this, this um, entity called the World Island. And Okay. And the map is very useful, and you just sort of redrew the map a little bit differently. Well, first of all, it's, it's fundamentally different the way the world map is drawn in the United States. You know, for over a 100 years, every American school child has sat in a classroom at middle school and then their civics classes in high school with a world map, right? It's a necessary artifact. And you sit there in the classroom, the teacher's droning on, you stare at this map, okay? And you're, you're introduced involuntarily year after year to geography and the american vision of the world in that map is very simple north and south america are at the center of the map and then there are these two blobs which is this bisected eurasian continent that are on the side that are of inconsequence okay the uh, mckinder's map of course was a map of the world as it is showing uh, eurasia and europe asia and africa as a unitary land mass within these outlying inconsequential islands like Iceland, Greenland, North America, South America, Australia. Okay, and he argued that uh, that the uh, the Heartland, a kind of Central Asian, a larger Central Asian region, was the pivot to controlling the whole of Eurasia. And he argued that the dynamic of world history had been an epic struggle between the landsmen, who for a thousand years up to the actually to the great death uh, of, uh, of 1315 uh, right, right up to to that moment uh, they had uh, you know the the hordes had swept out of the steppes and successfully swept across europe for literally a thousand years and that uh by the age of exploration the the sea the navigators dominant began to dominate the landsmen and this was the larger dynamic and he came up with an axiom about uh, uh, but 15 years after he published that article, in which he, he said something like, You know, he who controls uh, the heartland controls the world island, and he who controls the world island controls the world. I, I misquote, but that's the essence of it. Okay. And um, although there are other scholars who have made important contributions the development of the idea of geopolitics as a study. Mackinder is, is really the man who pulled it all together, and in that single seminal article, you know, brought the idea, the practice of geopolitics, right? And, and so, in my work, what I essentially did was to rediscover the dynamics that Mackinder had, as a geographer, and described uh, the historical dynamics underlying the, 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 the processes of contesting for control of the World Island. And that great generation of American leaders, whom I referred to, people like Eisenhower, you know, several hundred senior American military leaders who were involved uh, either at the apex or middle levels of building the apparatus of American power at the end of World War II, intuitively understood, you know, from having fought that global war, that they had to dominate Eurasia. And when you look at the array of American military power during the 40 years of the Cold War, it's all about control of Eurasia. And there's one line um, in a, an important book, I think it's called After Tamerlane, by John Darwin, who's an Oxford historian. And he said that, you know, it's just the one little, you know, this massive sort of like Seven or eight hundred page book. It's a real doorstopper. Very interesting work, right? And it covers you know from the whole of the Eurasian landmass from roughly the 13th century. So there's a reason it's long. But in there, there's this this there's a single line towards the end that the U.S. Imperium became the most powerful in world history because it was the first in a thousand years to control both axial ends of Eurasia, and that's it. He just sort of says it and moves on, right? And, uh,
1: yeah. and of course, uh, the American uh, imperium today I mean, there's 750 US military bases in over 80 countries, so it's still very much uh, present with us,
2: yeah. yeah but, but it's the, the way that that architecture was self consciously constructed, okay. The axial of course, in 1949 when NATO, when the Cold War was really getting going. And so we get the construction of those massive military bases like Rammstein Air Base in Germany, et cetera. So that's the Western axial end, which is uh, concretized, uh, which is anchored by that alliance, which persists today as the most powerful military alliance on the planet, and those bases, which still remain, many of them today. And then there was the Eastern end, almost simultaneously in 1951. um, We signed mutual defense pacts with Japan, South Korea. Sorry, Japan, the Philippines, and um, Australia. Two years later, we signed one with South Korea. And so we got this Pacific littoral. And that was the other axial end. And then for the rest of the Cold War, we laid on top of that sort of successive chains of steel. First of all, the the alliances NATO, CENTO, CETO, ANZUS, okay, right down that southern rim. And then initially two powerful US fleets the sixth fleet in the Mediterranean Atlantic the seventh fleet in the Indian Ocean Pacific and when the British pulled out of Bahrain you know we created the fifth fleet and we took over the old British base there and that was the kind of the, the middle part the, the, the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and and then you know uh, uh, hundreds of military bases with uh, uh, over a thousand uh, jet fighters, all ringing around that Eurasian landmass, locking up those two great landed powers, China and Russia, during the Cold War, confining them and dominating that landmass. And that has been the, the underpinning of U.S. global power. Uh, like the Portuguese, um, the Dutch, the British, we dominated Eurasia that was the epicenter of our global power and it's amazing how you know how that has been forgotten in Washington DC
1: yeah so i think we want to we want to pivot shortly to looking at the way china is disrupting this uh this imperium. But before we do, uh, the podcast is called Global Governance Futures, and I, I'm curious to ask, you know, to you, what what does how, how would you understand global governance? Because you know, you say empire has become kind of tainted, but empire itself is one of the most venerable forms of human governance, and I wonder through that lens, is global governance imperialism? Is global governance geopolitics? Because today, very often what you hear is global governance has a very strong kind of liberal gloss. It's the management of the global commons in the sort of global public interest. Um, so how how do you understand that terminology, which you do use in the book?
2: Again, it comes back to that duality I described <clears throat> uh, in the, the current iteration, in the, the Washington world system that we've been living in since 1945 there are the formalities uh, there are all the uh the annual meetings of the UN general assembly the regular meetings of the UN security council uh, there are the there are uh, the international conventions governing every form of human activity uh, um, uh imaginable um uh, uh, there are, uh, these are all governed by you know bodies that have procedures and protocols for fulfilling their mandate and enforcement of or uh, the, the, uh, those various treaties and protocols. Moreover, another thing that emerged uh, when the United States uh, built that world order in 1944, 45, there was the Bretton Woods Conference, which created the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. Initially, the, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which is now the World Trade Organization, the whole system of, of, uh, of, of exchanging of currencies and goods around the planet, Okay, so, you know, uh, that's that's global governance. uh, Okay, but when it comes to a crisis point, um, uh, and we see it, let's say for right now, for example, uh, the the UN (laughs) charter um, absolutely prohibits the acquisition of territory beyond one's boundaries by force. And so when Russia takes Crimea, what does the world do? Okay, so there's that. The, there's then that that large element of informal power. So the the, the United States not only constructed this apparatus at the peak of its power, but it lent its full economic, military, and diplomatic might to not to to the defense and the maintenance of of this international order. We violated it countless times and damaged it by doing so, but nonetheless, over the long term, we supported and maintained this order. Uh, 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 and now, what we're faced with is as a, a really interesting question: as around the end of this decade, or in 2030, when by, and we can talk about why that's going to happen, when U.S. hegemony is going to be effectively over, can this liberal international order, as it's operated for the past 70 years, you know, uh, with the human rights, the respect of national sovereignty, the uh, the international rule of law? Uh, resolving disputes among nations instead of through armed conflict—all that. Will will that will this 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 liberal international order will this survive this hegemonic transition? So there is this that duality that I described between power and principle has in our era
0: gained these very real institutional manifestations. And to look at those institutional manifestations, I wondered it. If- in your great book with the kind of long look at history, does the power always precede the, the principle? And thinking in a futuristic sense, could the principle precede the power or would that not work in a world order fashion? Because I, I'm, I'm reminded of, I think, was it Roosevelt who said, you know, that a diplomat should have a, carry a big stick and and talk softly, but it often feels that the, the stick is carrying the diplomat in a way that, you know, the the power is wielded in such a way that diplomacy is then retrospectively or principles are retrospectively used to justify something. And so when we look forward, is there a way in which looking at Buckminster Fuller and the idea of working for hundred percent of humanity, that principle could precede power in that duality. Sure.
2: One thing I discovered from looking at the evolution of these ideas over this uh, this long period of five and six hundred years uh, was that the the default mode for any empire is the exercise of power uh, without restraint, without limits. Um, and and so the power part of the equation um, is ingrained in, in hegemonic or imperial power. Uh, the the principle which often serves as a check. On the exercise of that power um, comes from civil society actors. Okay, so when you think about it, you know who was it that articulated these principles and imposed them upon their respective metropolitan governments? Well, in the Iberian Age, it was Dominicans, Dominican friars, the 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 Church. Um, and in a certain sense, if you think about you know late medieval into uh, emerging into early modern Europe, the the Church was the embodiment of civil society and so it was the church that articulated these principles and in constant dialogue with the monarchs of portugal and particularly spain imposed these tried to impose these principles upon the monarchy and get them to adopt them all right so in <clears throat> uh, the same thing that happened in the british uh, when britain was rising in the 18th century uh, by the latter decades the of the 18th century britain was the dominant power in the transatlantic slave trade, carrying over half the slaves across the Atlantic during that period, and, and not only at increasing its percentage, but the numbers soared. And uh, this was a an important British imperial project, the slave trade, and the the integration with the British colonies, sugar-producing colonies like Jamaica and Barbados and the Caribbean. Um, and, uh, and and then, where did the principle come from? It, it came from the dissenting churches, the Quakers, uh, uh, the, the Methodists, uh, Evangelical Anglicans, you know, they conducted this moral crusade, uh, this, this great national debate that got carried into Parliament and for decades that led to the abolition by Parliament of the, the slave trade. The British diplomats at the Congress of Vienna, uh, 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 in, I think it's Article 15 of the Congress of Vienna, have the most ringing denunciation imaginable of the slave trade, you know, with the kind of language that one would expect in the 21st century. Uh, okay, and this this carried through to the American period. Okay, when Americans were constructing <clears throat> this world order, and, and I mean these were conferences, you know, at Bretton Woods with you know John Maynard Keynes and uh, top American Treasury officials all sitting down and working out how they were going to operate the global economy. And there was another conference at Dumbarton Oaks in 1944, which is uh, just outside Washington, D.C. And the the major powers got together, and they decided that the U.N. would be dominated by the Security Council, which would have the five great powers, uh, you know, Britain, France, China, uh, the Soviet Union, the United States. They would control the U.N., and Franklin Delano Roosevelt said the General Assembly would be a, a little... Place for the, the smaller nation to get together once a year and blow off steam. And that was it. That was, that was the grand. It was supposed to be an imperial club. They took that to San Francisco when the Latin American republics, who had a prior conference, turned up and they had very different ideas of the structure. And then American civil society groups turned up, things like the, um, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the major African American civil society organization. Several activist Jewish groups turned up as well labor organizations turned up and in the debate in San Francisco American civil society in these organizations in its institutional array engaged American diplomats international diplomats and the UN that came out of it was very different than that, that had been crafted behind closed doors at Dumbarton Oaks by the by the the major powers okay um uh and you know, it's that 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 constant tension between civil society representing principle and you know the state apparatus, particularly its foreign manifestations, empire. Okay, that has created this duality. All right, so I think
1: that's really helpful, Alan. Certainly, in in the. Global politics scholarship scholars like Robert Cox have always invested civil society with a a crucial role in in shifting the the structural parameters of how power is exercised. And of course, calling power to account and opening up new possibilities, Mm -hmm. because, of course, you know, the the future is, is open ended ultimately and not predetermined, I guess, though. You know, you write in the book about how the UN 193 sovereign nation states was a very important departure from the imperial age that preceded it. I just wonder what you might say to a hard nosed real politic analyst who says, well, okay, but the highest aim of the UN was was nuclear disarmament, for example. And if we look at, say, um, how power is arrayed in the world in a sort of post-geographic sense, we might say, well, actually, power is concentrated in the nine countries that possess nuclear weapons. And all the other countries are basically provinces of those nine countries, and they fall under one nuclear umbrella or another. What what would you say to someone who basically has that sort of very reductionist, we could could say, uh, understanding of how global governance really is conducted?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's, nuclear weapons are an oddly elusive phenomenon, you know, used just twice. You know, Uh, the world developing nuclear weapons at an amazing speed and developing diplomacy and mechanisms to ensure that they're not used. And, you know, conflicts, um, you know, if China and the United States were to go to war in the Taiwan Straits, I would expect all sorts of weaponry being used, but I wouldn't expect nuclear weapons in either side. So, in other words, like, uh, it's the, the proliferation and also the switch from you know, the, the comparative firecrackers that were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the enormously powerful you know, hydrogen weapons we have today. It's the proliferation and the increase of the range of destruction, also, an awareness of what would happen if they were used. Not only to mention the you know the the years of of of, of, of fallout and, and disease, but also if there's extensive use of them, we now know there's likely to be a, a nuclear winter, that the particulates that would be shot up in the atmosphere would create a blanket that would shield us from the sun. And you know, uh, it's so well, you know, we, we all know that we can't use them. So they <clears throat> yes, that in the during the cold war before. Before nuclear winter, before people figured out about nuclear winter, there were actually people talked about the use of nuclear weapons, and they were kind of arrayed and moved around on the stage along with the other pieces. Yeah, since the the realization about nuclear winter, it's it's uh, people aren't moving the pieces around the same way. They don't intrude. Everybody you know, who has enough sense to to build them also has enough sense to understand that they can never use them. So I I just I I think nuclear weapons are or uh, this curiously elusive and ambiguous piece on the global chessboard, if you will. Um, uh, I don't know. Just you know,
0: so, uh, Just to pick up on that as well, to, uh, to kind of continue the red team idea, that there's often the idea espoused that we're so hyper-connected now in or what is it, 2022 that you know nuclear war, war is impossible, but even potentially war is impossible um because we're so uh there's a, a book called connectography by a guy called Paricano who talks about this that we're so interconnected that you know th- things have fundamentally changed and I wanted to get a historian's approach to that idea of the hyperconnectivity because obviously there were there were huge hyperconnectivity chains were well, literally chains in the kind of the, the the slave trade and and all that but is this hyperconnectivity that we have now different and how might that affect any changes in world order
2: <laughs> um the relationship between um armed conflict and changes in world order, okay. Um up to the end of World War II, uh uh the exercise and defense of, of global power and its decline uh was off, was <clears throat> although it had many causes, it ultimately was resolved militarily. Uh take World War II, for example. It was the 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 destruction the death of seventy million people uh the birth of an idea of nationhood and uh and freedom that came out of that conflict and that was articulated at the national level all of that led to the end of the the preceding imperial order um uh, <coughs> uh but the what's curiously uh, about the the u s Victory in the Cold War and, if you will, its consolidation of its hegemony from being a kind of, you know, a semi-global to global <clears throat> uh, was the way that it wasn't done by uh, by, by nuclear arms. Um, you know, once the Soviet Union and the United States achieved uh, uh, mutually, what was called mutually assured destruction and, and they came to the brink of thermonuclear conflict in the Cuban Missile Crisis, both powers pulled back. Uh, and, and and nuclear weapons were not a significant element in the Cold War. In fact, very quickly after that, within a decade of the Cuban crisis, you got the start of detente, uh, detente and the, the strategic arm limitation talks and all the rest, okay? Um, but the conflict continued, okay? And it continued through surrogates and in, in arenas that were deemed to be secondary. And so, you know, the the, the final phase of the Cold War shifted to Central America, Central Asia, and Southern Africa, where both sides you know, engaged in an intense competition of conflict. But, you know, with the exception of, and it's a big exception, the Soviet Red Army <clears throat> in Afghanistan, it was generally, we were fighting, uh, with, with surrogates. Uh, and, um, and so this, 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 imp- just as the, the Cold War was resolved, with sub-nuclear and, and uh, um, you might say, peripheral conflicts. So, I think this current transition is going to be resolved either non-militarily or through a, a, regional, a regional war.
1: Uh, so, let's, let's pivot to that, Al. Let's pivot to this situation that we currently find ourselves in where Beijing seems to be stepping up its challenge to, to U.S. supremacy. And you write in the book how Beijing is investing an awful lot of its energy and indeed trade surplus in the integration of the, the World island. Uh, of Africa, Asia, and Europe into sort of an economic powerhouse. Now, some scholars argue actually that it's a misnomer to think that China has some sort of grand strategy. Um, there's recent books come out by uh, Shahar Hamiri and Lee Jones that argues that actually China is not monolithic, it's not unitary, that it doesn't really have a grand strategy. Indeed, there's actually it's, there's a lot of fragmentation within the the Chinese power elite. Your book seems to suggest that that interpretation may not be quite right that there does seem to be at least we can infer evidence that there is some kind of grand strategy or design behind the way china is operating geopolitically
2: well <clears throat> i mean the, the how can i got to put it if we measure the actions rather than the process by which the actions are, are achieved there appears to be, at uh, least in geopolitical terms, a surprisingly clear Chinese strategy for challenging U.S. global power. All right. um, <clears throat> when China was admitted to the W World Trade Organization in 2001, and in the next 15 years, while the U.S. was spending a you know, trillion dollars mm-hmm. dumping blood and treasure into desert sands. China was becoming the workshop of the world, and by 2014, they'd accumulated $4 trillion in foreign exchange. And at at that moment when China was cresting in 2013, President Xi Jinping stood up at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan, and he articulated what became the Belt and Road Initiative. And and he talked about it very clearly. He talked about um, building infrastructure, to overcome the the distances and to build an integrated market that would stretch from the Baltic Sea to the the South China Sea. And China then developed the the international instruments for for building that apparatus of power. They founded the Asian Infrastructure Bank um, and they began expending about $1.2 trillion, which is the, the biggest aid program or development program in human history. Corrected for inflation, the Marshall Plan that the United States uh, introduced to Europe at the end of World War II was about 100 billion. So this is 10 times that when corrected for inflation. It's the biggest development scheme in human history. And the Western press focuses on, you know, the uh, debt colonialism, uh, white elephant projects, you know, they are, are the U.S. press coverage in the United States is, um, amazingly consistent in its criticism of, of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. But this and then China's ongoing economic outreach to your, to, to, to Eurasia and Africa, uh, this, this economic integration of the world island, you know, is, is, is so Enormous is so unimaginably large that, of course, there is going to be, they're all going to be all kinds of excesses. There will be waste. I would be surprised if my working figure for any major scheme is about 10% waste for any well-run project. I mean, that's a lot of waste. But nonetheless, if you look at what's done with the 90%, you know, it is transformative. And what it is doing, it is laying down, uh, uh, a first of all, a, a kind of a steel grid of infrastructure of pipelines and rails, uh, and uh, that reach across the whole of the Eurasian landmass, uh, if you will, overcoming the distance that that has historically divided Europe from Asia, two continents. Why? It was only the distance and the empty center. China filled that, and then the other thing that's really striking too is that China has used its capital to to build and invest in a, a string of ports, 40 ports that ring the, the world island, uh, you know, uh, um, right around the Indian Ocean, Hambantota in uh, Sri Lanka, Gwadar in Pakistan, a military base in Djibouti, ports all the way around Africa, and then all the way around Europe from Piraeus in Greece to Zeebrugge, Belgium to Hamburg, Germany. Piraeus is virtually owned by the Chinese now. They're investing heavily in Genoa and Trieste to give themselves access. And when you when you overlay the the map of my book of the the Portuguese Empire in 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 1570, which had the, the Portuguese being a small nation, not having the population for territorial empire. Uh, for for territorial colonies, they built 50, you know, fortified ports with ramparts and bastions that could be defended from a landward attack or a seaward attack. And they built this network of about 50 of them globally. And you look at the string of Portuguese feitorias down, you know, starting in, in Lisbon and going down the coast of Africa and down the coast of India and then to Indonesia and up to Macau, and you overlay that with the, the map of the the, the the 40 Chinese ports, they look surprisingly similar, 1570 to 2020. It, it's amazing. You know, it, it, it's like you could do a, I should have had a transparency and an overlay, like from a medical textbook. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's phenomenal. Okay. So, you know, they, they've laid down this very potent uh, infrastructure and, and and you know uh, uh, then they uh, they they are constructing an international the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is more a military and security organization. Uh, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, which is already enormous, they have uh, private equity, they have provincial and regional banks that are making loans as well. It's an, it's an enormous project, which is making the uh, China. Um, uh, economically dominant in in Eurasia. And the other thing that's occurring as well, which nobody really is commenting on, back in the Cold War, the world shuddered when Mao went to Moscow. And suddenly you had, you know, not only the establishment of a unified communist government in China, but a Sino-Soviet alliance. And it was that, you know, the containment of that alliance which was the logic for the of the U.S. constructing that massive apparatus uh, to to dominate the Eurasian landmass, to to you know to fortify the Iron Curtain and to contain China and Russia behind it? Okay. Well, now we have a latter day alliance that's really quite strikingly similar between Putin and Xi Jinping. Of course, it's it's the the balance has shifted. You know, back in the nineteen fifties, you know, it was. Um, The Soviet Union that was the economic power and the technological innovator, and the Chinese that had sort of the raw foot soldiers, which were thrown into the Korean War at Stalin's behest, now the the balance has kind of shifted. Russia's got the military might and China's got the economic power. But nonetheless, the combination of that ad hoc alliance is really shattering uh, successively the U.S. controls diplomatic, political, economic, and military over the Eurasian landmass. And the flashpoint in that whole thing, if it's going to occur, to to go back to this question about the relationship between the decline of world orders and military power, if that's going to occur, it's going to occur at the eastern axial end of America's dominance of Eurasia in that chain of islands from Japan uh, through the Ryukyu, Okinawa, Philippines, down to Australia, what Chinese call the first island chain. And the Chinese are really, in terms of, you know, their geopolitical strategy, I mean, you know, I don't know what academics are saying, but you ask the U.S. Navy, you ask the U.S. Air Force, you talk to these guys privately and they'll tell you that they think they're engaged in a serious long-term Challenge from China, you know, running right down that island chain, and most of them, particularly the aviators, know that that if it comes to a conflict, they'll lose. You know that that you know the simple fact of the matter is, we have to project our forces five thousand miles <clears throat> from Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and the conflict is going to occur within probably two hundred miles of the Chinese coast. So let's say we have two super carriers. We can get 150 jets in the air and the Chinese can get 2,200 jets in the air. Plus the Chinese have what's known as a carrier killing missile, which the U.S. Navy regards as a very serious threat to its carriers. And then there's the cutting edge of technology. Um, right now China is probably a near peer military competitor. But very quickly, in a number of, of technological areas, China is emerging by the end of this decade as a peer competitor. And they're already ahead of us in one critical area of technology, hypersonic missiles. Hypersonic missiles fly at a minimum speed of about 4,000 miles an hour. They're so fast that nothing can stop them. And all of the U.S. tests of hypersonic missiles are basically burned up in the extreme speed. China has successfully tested one as of last October. And the hypersonic missile with its low it you know, orbital re-entry is basically a, a death for any aircraft carrier. US supercarriers, bigger carriers simply mean bigger targets. Uh, so so that the likely the, the the reality of China winning that conflict, pressing relentlessly, um, means that China will probably push the United States functionally out of that. First island chain, you know, uh, take over Taiwan, consolidate its control uh, without an overt conflict. You know, one of the things about naval power <clears throat> that, that again, you know, we all we all know the the big battles, you know, Lepanto, Trafalgar, you know, uh, Philippine Sea, etc. You know, in which one navy destroys another. But you know, what are navies doing? Yeah, you know, in between those very few engagements, what is the you know these two 300-ship navies of China and the U.S actually doing? What I think they're doing is through their incessant patrolling, uh, they're weaving a, a cat's cradle of control, turning the, the great global commons of the open oceans into de facto uh, imperial zones of control. And so China is engaging in that. You know, that, that's what's going on. The these kind of constant pushing them back and forth along that along that first island chain. China is, you know, is is swarming Taiwan with jet flights, swarming the East China Sea, challenging the Japanese. Uh, there was a <clears throat> uh, late last year a, a joint Chinese-Russian fleet basically circumnavigated Japan, you know. I mean. It's, it's, that, it's that that's going on. And as China's technological edge develops and its sheer military capacity develops, eventually that pressure, if it works as it's supposed to work, will just push the United States back to Hawaii.
0: Oh, just, After, to, just to uh, take that point, if the three of us and anyone watching or listening kind of zoomed out and we were extraterrestrial was looking at the long history and you know the, the the mix of power and principle, the atrocities and the, the virtues of, for example, the U.S. Um, reign and the, the U.S. Uh, world order. As an extra, extraterrestrial, we would be asking what what's the issue if there's a so say there was no there was no conflict between China and and the U.S. But a kind of a handing over of the reins uh, of of this kind of elusive, as as you put it, world order. What's What's the issue? What might be obviously I'm a devil's advocate a bit, but what might be the issue there? What, what when viewed alongside the atrocities of the the US and the creation of their empire and their world world order? Um, what's different? What's what's unique about this this uh, manifestation? Sure.
2: Um, this is not what I call the transatlantic Baton Pass from Britain to the United States, generally amicable, although it had its rough edges indeed, over Suez and all that we talked about earlier, but nonetheless, essentially amicable uh, transfer of power and, and even positions like the Bahrain base and the Royal Navy to the US Fifth Fleet, etc. Um, uh, so uh, this is very different. Uh, uh, first of all, all of the powers we've been talking about, you know, uh, Portugal, Spain, uh, Holland, Britain, United States, were participants in that fitful, painful five-century debate over human rights that culminated in the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. China had an autonomous cultural development that was very much outside that debate. Uh, their elite do not go to, to, to law schools. They're not schooled in these principles. That, these ideas don't permeate their culture the way they do uh, the West. So this is the first Global hegemon that to emerge outside the Western community uh, that had not participated in that debate. So they essentially um, have no investment in the international rule of law and in these principles of human rights. Uh, So that's, that's one stake. The other thing that's very important, uh, if you recall our conversation earlier, when I said that, you know, that every empire exercises its power. And the principle comes from civil society. You now, the Dominicans under Spain, the dissenting churches in Great Britain, the civil society groups in the United States representing various ethnic and religious communities in the United States, and like organizations from around the world that convene in San Francisco. China is, first of all, it's a—it's not only a communist state, but it's a, a 21st-century communist state. In which they have perfected surveillance. You know, the, the great firewall of China cuts China off functionally from this web of international communications on the internet. And then within China is an incredibly effective instrument for crushing dissent. So China is going to be not only a nation that emerges on the world stage outside this Western tradition of human rights. But also one that has crushed its civil society. I mean, yes, there's lots of ferment in China. There are all kinds of, you know, it's a it's a complex society with many debates and ideas. But the state can tamp that down through these unparalleled uh, strength of its of its surveillance and police repressive apparatus. So it's going to be not only the first global hegemon outside the Western tradition, but the first one to actually crush and contain its civil society and that's that's a real difference because it means that the interplay between civil society representing principle and the state representing power that won't happen that can't happen in china i mean yeah there'll be something but they're they're being so absolutely relentless and ruthless and crushing dissent it's extraordinary
0: and they've it's got real- the instruments to do it it's really interesting hearing hearing that assessment because it, we've almost come full circle to the start of our conversation in a way, talking about the the CIA kind of surveillance of of your own work and and whether that is a necessary component of of all global hegemony in in, in, in some way potentially.
2: Yeah, well, so take my own case in that. Okay, um, look, I was a a twenty six year old graduate student. Uh, I had I was nobody uh so why did i survive and why did my work get out well um you know i had friends uh i knew seymour hirsch who was arguably america's most important investigative reporter in the last decades of the 20th century and he was then a correspondent for the new york times and so you know i got in touch with seymour hirsch and he put the story of Cord Meyer, Jr., the head of CIA covert operations, attempting to suppress my book. I put it on the front page of the New York Times. The American media picked it up. Uh, the uh, you know, uh, anti-war movement picked it up. In other words, American civil society, you know, saved me, allowed me a chance to articulate my message and to publish my book. If that had been China uh, today, in that apparatus... I would have been crushed. And and there are, there are human rights activists in China who are right now being, you know, marginalized, surveilled, and crushed, okay? Um, and that, mind you, that happened to me at the peak of the Cold War, you know, in the early 1970s, when this apparatus was at the absolute peak of its power within American society and had enormous strength, okay? Um, I mean, at the time, I was told that, the CIA knew what my book said because they'd already had the manuscript. They had assets in every publisher in New York, every media organization in the United States. They had the book. That's what I, I have no way of knowing if that's accurate. but That's what I was told at the time. And I, 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 you know, the people who were telling me that were were, were, were sensible people.
1: So, Al, um perhaps we can now shift, you know, as I think we, we roll towards... The close of this conversation, there are a couple of things we really want to pick up on, though, before we before we close today. I mean, one is of course that the book, in in quite an audacious fashion, projects out into the future, projects out into twenty one hundred, even beyond. Actually, I think twenty three hundred is referenced in there, based on the climate science. And we haven't actually talked about climate change yet. So, in the book, you you basically predict that China is likely to to become a peer, you know, or even a maybe perhaps push beyond the US, um, the US US power by 2030, become the hegemon in 2030. But that it, it's it's the Chinese world order is also likely to blink out by 2050, due to possible major climate change impacts. Perhaps you could just lay out that scenario. Why will Chinese world order, according to to your read of the science and sort of blending that with your geopolitical expertise, why do you think it's going to be so short-lived? Sure.
2: Uh, You've introduced the third variable in my model for what constitutes a world order. Uh, It rested, as I say in the introduction of the book, on the factors that we've been talking about, Human, the, the definition of human rights and the definition of national sovereignty. In other words, what constitutes a nation and what are the rights of the people that live within it? But there's been a third aspect of every world order is its form of energy. Uh, and so the Iberian world order was founded upon two things. One, mastery of the winds, wind power for navigation. And two, the mobilization of human muscle power in its most extreme and its perversely productive form through slavery and I explain why slavery, uh, why I treat slavery as a form of energy. And then I make a, a, a an unprovable analytical assertion that Britain's rise to global power and its capacity to erase slavery was because it was developing an alternative form of energy in terms of coal-fired steam power. Not only the, the big engines that Watt first put into mines and mills in the UK, but also the the, the smaller engines that were put on board trains and, uh, and, and ships and ultimately inside factories and sugar plantations worldwide. You know, mobile six to 12 horsepower steam engines, Right, and that this, it, it is, as Britain's slave campaign proceeded from abolishing the slave trade to abolishing slavery to then actively extirpating slavery, that was, in a way, fueled by this alternative form of energy, and that the, <clears throat> the U.S. Uh, global order was fueled by its dominance of the, the petroleum market, that coal actually remained the dominant U.S. power, a uh, form of energy, until roughly 1950. So the rise of petroleum is coincident with America's rise, and, and that's why we talked about the... Penetration of the Middle East, uh, the whole Iraq War, as an attempt to consolidate control over that oil. All right, uh, uh, and so um, you know, uh, the downside, of course, of this uh, this eruption of uh, of coal-fired steam-driven energy that liberated humanity from the, you know, in a certain sense, from the curse of slavery and coerced labor of even colonialism, uh, was, of course, the emissions. And in 1896, a Nobel. Prize-winning Swedish physicist named Cervante Arrhenius published an article in an Edinburgh journal in which he said that uh, if CO two emissions keep going, the climate in the Arctic will rise by nine degrees centigrade. And uh, he said that in 1896. Um, uh, and indeed, uh, China, as it as it emerged as a major power, first of all, turned to its m- domestic source of energy, coal. And in that massive Belt and Road Initiative, as China finances um, industrialization and and uh, uh, modernization of the economy for some very impoverished third world nations, uh, it's, it's introducing its coal-fired uh, electrical generation technology. Uh, and China, right now, in terms of its own domestic growth, is still relying upon coal. China is responsible for 30%. Of the greenhouse gas emissions today, and that share is likely to increase rather than decrease. Uh, at Glasgow, um, <clears throat> uh, there was a joint statement from the United States and China talking about their joint commitment to ending greenhouse gas emissions. And China, you know, said that they would be introducing this into the, I think they said their fourteenth five-year plan. Well, if you look it up, when does the fourteenth five-year plan start? It starts in twenty twenty-five. So they're not even gonna do anything for another three years. And what's China's formal commitment? Xi Jinping has said that China will be carbon neutral by 2060, okay? India is gonna be carbon neutral. They made a big announcement at Glasgow by 2070. Well, so <clears throat> so China's duality is of course, their, their program of the Belt and Road Initiative is going to uplift countless millions of people from poverty who are Written off by the neoliberal financial establishment and the world order as America had it, and not, not being even considered. Okay, so it's going to uplift them, but at the same time, it's going to do it with this 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 polluting energy uh, that that is 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 going to frustrate attempts to deal with global warming. So. Um, one thing I did in the book, okay, uh, in that last chapter that you referenced, was I predicted what's going to happen for the rest of the 21st century. And I was, did so mindful that, that every time people in my discipline, history, which I, I, I believe is, I mean, I'm the reason I'm an historian because I, I believe firmly that it is the most supple and sophisticated of all the social sciences, you know, um, but that's just me as an historian, you know, waving the flag for my little team. Okay. But <clears throat> every team's got its strengths <clears throat> when, you know, as an historian, uh, we are really good when it's over and, and we know what happened. We can tell you not only what happened, but why it happened just that way and no other. We're really good at that. But every time we take that and project it into the future, the results are usually not only wrong, but they're almost laughably wrong. Okay, so, so I I, I was faced with a conundrum. I, I wanted to to look at the shape of global power for the rest of the 21st century, mindful of the limitations of my discipline. So that's when I turned to environmental science. And what was what I was struck by it? It's it's you know it seems obvious on the face, but actually it's really exceptional. Environmental science is all about prediction. They're the I mean, you think about what I don't know. You're a political scientist, right? And you tell me how how much you guys like to predict? I think you guys basically don't like to go much beyond the next general election, right? Uh, economists were, uh, basically want to predict, you know, maybe when the next recession might happen. You know, you know. Okay, environmental scientists are are all of their publications have graphs and charts and very complex calculations on scenarios right to the end of the twenty first century, all right, on the level of global warming, and they have. You know, low range, mid range and high range and, and, you know, points in between. But those are the three things they do of probability. You know, what is the, you know, the, the you know, 1.5 degrees of increased global warming has a high probability of occurring. Okay. Uh, up to four degrees centigrade of global warming by, the, by 2100, by the end of the century, has a low degree of probability of occurring. And they all have these charts and they debate it. And then all of the smaller things, like measuring the the Greenland ice cap and, and Antarctica, and all that, are fed into this model that the that the <clears throat> IPCC, the 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 coalition of scientists working into the UN, that do these projections. Okay, so all I did was I took this environmental science and I read it, and I said, you know, the, and you look at the reports, other reports coming in from people like the. International Energy Association, and they're saying, eh, by 2040, we're going to be, you know, polluting badly. We're not going to meet these targets. So I tend to take the more, the least probable, uh, the most pessimistic scenario, and you track that line to the 21st century, and then you say, okay, so that's that's there's environmental science that's that's actually engaged in the science of prediction. Now let's overlay on top of that the politics, the shift in global power that's going to arise from this climate change, okay? Uh, and so, in, I gotta put it, environmental science did the work that, that history could not do because we don't have instruments for, predi- for prediction, all right? Um, so <clears throat> what I see is this, uh, environmental science says that by roughly 2050, the rising sea levels and uh, and, Given what we're just learning about the Thwaites uh, um, uh, ice flow in, in in Antarctica, and the way that within two to three years the buttressing of that is going to collapse, and that massive Florida-sized ice sheet is going to fragment and then start calving at an accelerated rate. Okay, so uh, uh, the the sea level rise is real, and our our current predictions for it are probably on the conservative side. So what does that mean? That means by 2050, the Mekong Delta, home to 20% of the population of Vietnam, will be underwater. One of the world's great granaries for the last 100 years, gone. And it means Shanghai, which was uh, excavated from sea and swamp, beginning in the 15th century, is gonna return to the waters from whence it came. By 2050, projections are that Shanghai will be largely, if not entirely, underwater, including much, much of the downtown. And that's a coastal city it's, it's not like, let's say London, where you can put a sea barrier at the, at the mouth of the Thames or, uh, like New York, where you can put a sea barrier, a much larger, more expensive one, but you can put one in the Veranzano Narrows or in Boston, which is ideal because they've got a narrow, uh, uh, opening to the, the seas. Okay. This is, this is like Miami. Okay. Shanghai is like Miami. This is a city that's extending along a coast. There's no natural barrier to construct. Miami is gone. Shanghai is gone by 2050. That's now home to nearly 18 million people. It's the major financial center for China. Uh, And then somewhere around 2060, 2070, uh, environmental science says that it's not just global warming, it's global heating. That the North China Plain, which is that area between Shanghai and Beijing, currently home to about 400 million people, in many ways the agricultural and industrial heartland of China, that will become one of the least habitable places on the planet. And it's not gonna just sort of happen in in 2070 like bang, it's gonna build to that with rising temperature so that there will be hundreds of extreme weather events. And then starting in around 2070, the predictions are that China will experience in the North China Plain, Will experience the first of five episodes of 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature. Now, what does that mean? That means the balance of heat and humidity is such that the human body cannot sweat. And so a healthy individual, you or me, you know, sitting at rest, not moving, is dead in six hours. And that's going to afflict the North China Plain. So China ironically is kind of digging its own grave and pursuing this coal-fired path to economic growth and industrialization and international development.
1: Now, well, it's interesting you use that phrase, Al, because the UN Secretary General, of course, also uh, yeah, argued crazy. that the world is digging its own grave at COP twenty-six in Glasgow, although though his 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 words weren't widely reported, but though were yeah, the exact right, phrase he I used.
2: Would, I would say to take a, a morbid metaphor. That China's the grave digger. They're wielding the shovel. They're digging it for us, okay, and, and for themselves as well. Because if you look at all of the major industrial nations in the temperate, uh, the Northern Hemisphere temperate zone that are going to be afflicted by climate change, you know, the first is China, and then the second is North India, the Gangetic Plain, which is going to also have in the same period uh, less extreme, but still some episodes of 35 degrees. Uh, wet bulb temperature as well. Uh, so <clears throat> what that brings us to is that by, uh, the other thing that's, that's gonna happen and there the are predictions from the World Bank and the UN, uh, and we're already seeing it, climate change refugees. Um, and let's imagine the impact that that's going to have on the global order, okay? Um, uh, between 2016 and 2018, uh, driven in large part by climate change, you got Middle Eastern uh, refugees coming through Turkey into Greece. You have Sub-Saharan African refugees coming across the the Mediterranean to Europe. Central American refugees coming through Mexico to the United States. And that arrival of refugees at the southern shore of the European Union and the United States produced this uh, extraordinary eruption of hyper-nationalist uh, populism. You know, Britain's exit from the European Union, the rise of all these ultra-nationalists around Europe, Donald Trump's campaign, uh, build the wall to stop these immigrants from coming into the United States. You add that all up, how many people? Just two million. One, one, two million people. Okay, the predictions are by 2050, and, and it's gonna build again steadily to that. By 2050, there will be 200 million climate change refugees worldwide. There are other estimates that are as high as 1.2 billion. So what happens when hundreds of millions of people who are in motion not, you know, for employment, for simple survival, uprooted from, from seashores that are pounded by extraordinary weather events, uh, from the edge of, of arid regions, suffering aridification, no longer having sufficient water to engage in agriculture and to survive? Again, and people are in motion. What's going to happen? We're, we're faced with the reality of global disorder. That's why I think that, 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 that as this, these problems go worse, China's system of international order, <clears throat> which is a much more self-maximizing, you know, mutual benefit exchange, uh, 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 a national self-maximization, that, that system w- will grow. And the international cooperation, which has been the spirit that undergirded this entire Washington world over the last 70 years, and that begins to fade. So when, when, when the Chinese, Chinese can build and operate their system for maybe 20 to 30 years. But as climate change reaches this inflection point, this serious crisis point, and China is forced to pull back, uh, its international involvement, such as it might have been, the world will be faced with a situation for the first time in about 600 years at that point with no world order and the threat of really serious global disorder because this is not going to be, you know, grand conflicts. These are going to be the most primal and miserable kinds of conflicts fought all across the planet for for arable land and for water. It's going to be—the potential is, is horrible and also, you know, it's— refugees are moving by the millions of people shutting borders and you know what we saw on the belarus poland border and that that you know played out you know, not just a few hundred people and not just a few thousand people but millions of people so so what's the alternative to this global disorder okay so trying to be you know, i mean this may seem impossible almost absurdly but but actually it's manageable You know, there's actually a reasonably finite solution. One, reform the UN internally, so it's much more of a collaborative organization. This simply means a reorganization of the UN Security Council, which is still the supreme body in the organization. Instead of having fading powers like France and Britain and the United States, having, you know, guaranteed seats, maybe have international organizations uh, having rotating membership uh, people like ASEAN the Association of Southeast Asian Nations the Arab League African organizations okay the the European Union the you know global collectivity so that this body would become truly representative of the human community and therefore its mandates would have the kind of moral force of a collective decision okay so that's that's one thing and then if we have this reform body what might it do to mediate situation well there need to be 3 Limited but significant changes in the definition of national sovereignty. First, no nation, circa 2050, would have the right to emit greenhouse gases, and to be to do so would be treated as, let's say, what's supposed to be tantamount to an armed incursion, uh, taking other people's territory by force of arms. That's supposed to be a no-no in the current order. Well, we could treat greenhouse gas emissions instead of voluntary targets as mandatory. Okay. The second thing uh, would be uh, the the UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees and and the resettlement refugees, which is now voluntary, you know, would maybe have to become mandatory that this, this collective body would resettle people on some kind of rational basis. Where is their land? Where is their resources? Where can people move? Doing this collectively in a rational, planned way, all right? rather than this, 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 this chaos that we're, we've been witnessing and are likely to witness even more. Third thing, at Glasgow, there was much debate and discussion about the transfer of funds, supposed to be hundred billion dollars that was agreed to at Paris, hasn't quite happened, voluntarily from the prosperous, temperate nations to the climate afflicted tropical nations. That, those, those funds would have to become, transfers would have to become mandatory you know, a small tax on gross domestic product of a couple of percent. Small, you know, for the, those that have it, large for those that receive it. And this would then be used to remediate climate change so that the maximum number of people possible could shelter in place and not have to go through the agony of disruption, which is mass migration. And, and these, 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 these reforms are actually small. And really quite manageable, and we have the international organizations. We have the debate, the discussion, the civil society to discuss them. And, and I don't think it's going to be the, you know, the the presidents and prime ministers sitting in their cabinet rooms or sitting at their in their seats of the UN are going to do this. This is going to take, as it always does, an international civil society movement to create this. You know that the, the, the if you think about the environmental movement now, what are, what are its demands? You know, stop emitting. Okay, that's it. Okay. You know, that That's a pretty narrow agenda. Given the s- scale of the problem, the impact it's going to have on human life and society, this movement needs to get a more coherent agenda. Kind of like what happened in 1945 when the world powers, the international civil society organizations, debated over the structure of the UN. Yeah. So the, 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 we have work to do some serious work.
1: That's very helpful, Al. I think it's good to set out an agenda. Uh, I, and some might argue that the problem obviously lies at, very, sort of at a very deep structure in terms of, well, uh, a form of industrial civilization, if you will, a form of extractive, exploitative industrial logic, which has been extended through modern technological innovation, and we somehow need to get a grip on that, what some refer to as the, the technosphere. And perhaps just to to close out this conversation, I hope we've done some justice to what is a really a a magisterial work for our times. I really recommend our audience pick up a copy of your, your book. I mean, I was very struck by the final chapter where in many ways, the geopolitical analysis kind of fades out. (laughs) Really we're left with, well, here is the climate science and here is the sort of the, in a way, the geological reality that we're going to have to contend with here. And I, i was it made me wonder you know what kind of what kind of evolutionary historical shift are we are we about to move into here i mean if, is it is it a change within the world within within the sort of system so a change from say one form of capitalism to another as you as you elaborate between the Dutch and the british to the u s and so on or is this actually a much larger scale change in how well how we as a species operate? on the planet. And so are we on the precipice of some kind of much more radical change of the system? And if that is the case, as you've done in this book, do we need to really extend our gaze beyond the social sciences, the the 600 years of geopolitics to actually take into account other analogies from, say, evolutionary or even geological sciences? Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, <clears throat> yours was an invitation to make a grand statement, uh, which Myself as an historian, grounded in yeah you know, that empirical reality of person, time, and place. I don't know if I'm the uh, I'm the person to do that. But let me bring out. Let me answer that question by sort of foregoing the invitation of some stunning, sweeping philosophical vision of the kind that I again, being an empiricist, being a historian, uh, that's not my that's not my last. Uh, as a cobbler, uh, um, um, energy. Uh, the one thing we didn't talk about very much was that I said one of the key attributes of every world order is is energy. The Iberian Age, the mastery of the winds, and the the the, the maximization of the output of human muscle power through the slave plantation, the sugar producing slave plantation. Okay, and then in the British Imperial Age. The discovery of coal-fired steam power, and then in the American Age, the switch to uh, to uh, uh, higher BTU output petroleum. Okay, so each of these imperial ages has, has had a form of energy, and in order to just to, to survive uh, and to to want to decap cap climate change, not to end it, because you know there's what's called committed warming and the CO2 that's up there in the atmosphere, that's there, okay? But to cap the emissions, all right, and to maybe keep this at a, a manageable level, you know, I don't think two degrees centigrade would be possible, but maybe three rather than four. But anyway, to, to to cap it as much as we can, two things have got to happen. One, everybody's got to switch to electrical energy. And two, the grid around the globe has got to switch to renewable sources of electrical energy. Okay. And that's going to be a combination of three things. It's going to be a combination of wind power, solar power, and and this is something that the the green movement has got to get their heads around nuclear power, okay? And I'm not talking about, you know, three mile island sized or chernobyl sized massive nuclear reactors. I'm talking about micro nuclear reactors, the kinds that are on actually every major university campus, okay? which engineers start building them, one, they'll be smaller. Uh, and as what happens with anything, uh, you, the more you make of them, the more reliable they become. And then then if there's a disaster with a small nuclear reactor, it's manageable. It's not a Chernobyl. It's not a potentially three-mile island. Okay, so nuclear power to stabilize the grid. But what we're going to be seeing is then, a, particularly solar power, you know, is the... The shift away from this massive, highly centralized petroleum energy infrastructure, which not only has the, the Seven Sisters, but all of the imperial power and the wars, like the U.S. intervention in the Middle East, that are fought to control this finite resources. When the world is pulling their power from the sun and the wind, you're going to have a decentralization, a diffusion of energy control right around the planet. And that's why I think that that, that what I'm talking about is the recreation of the UN as a much more collegial body, that there might be a coincidence between this diffusion of energy, the basic driver of every world order, all right, so that in the mid-20th century, we can construct a world order that's much more collegial among nations and much more democratic in its sources of energy, to have a, a, a body that really represents, if you will, the aspirations of humankind and forges collective solutions that allows us to, to cope with the consequences of climate change.
1: Thank you, well. Yeah, I think it's, it's never too late to start, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much for your…
2: <laughs> the political… This is actually, this has been a useful conversation because I never thought that before. I, you know, again, I have this factor in these other eras, but I didn't bring it into the the final bit of the book of the political implications of this more democratized form of solar power because where the sun shines, that's where you have your energy. Everybody puts up their panels. I don't know. I put them up on the roof of my house. I've got my own battery pack, you know. Uh, I can detach from the grid. And as people around the world do that, I mean, good heavens, Opium growers in Helmand province are you know are, are operating their pumps to, to water their poppy fields with solar panels. You know, it's it, it it's a democratization of energy once that once that once the world transforms. And it's gonna be it's gonna be an enormous project involving trillions of dollars in capital. But once it happens, you know, uh, once it's in place, it's gonna be extraordinarily democratic. And and from that we'll will emerge the possibility if energy, human rights, and sovereignty have been these three key drivers of world orders. The world order that emerges is going to have this democratic form of energy. And that is going to be profound in its political implications. Thanks for making me think those thoughts. Right? Hmm. Good comments. Well, thank you.
0: No, thank you. I will have to get you in for when that book has been written by you. That, that'll <laughs> be the next one. You know, the political implications of... Uh, Democratization of energy, but thank you so much for kind of walking us through your book that came out. I think it was October to Govern the Globe. Uh, is it Haymarket Books, the yep. publisher? And we, yeah, we'd, we'd recommend it here at the podcast. We've really enjoyed it, and it's been a great conversation. Uh, our thank you so much for taking a considerable amount of time to talk to us today, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. No, I did, and
2: uh, if you could send me a link when you're done, that's a great pusher. Then also in this globalized market in which we we live um you can't get the, the hard copy book because of but you can order the kindle so that if you want to read the book on your device you know you can get it amazon will sell, sell you a kindle there you go another global artifact of the age in which we live Thank yeah you. Brilliant. Thank hey you guys, good. Good. this was a this was a, a very interesting and challenging conversation Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global
2: governance.